Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to Headspace from Prospect Magazine, where we bring together three contributors from this month's edition and ask them, what's the big idea? I'm Tom Clark, and as the February edition of Prospect hits the stands, we discuss webs of control, whether that's the World Wide Web and how it's been ensnared by five big businesses, the ISIS network, which, though it's now gone from the city of Nosal, still leaves many people there tied in by association and paying the price as a result, and then how armies of so-called bots orchestrated by online string pullers may be changing the way that we vote. They're trying to mess with us. They're still not that good at it. We can get ahead of this. So, with the individual ensnared from every side, can we find our own way through and have a free-thinking conversation within a tightly formatted 30-minute podcast? Well, let's find out. With me in Westminster today is John Nocton, who's a senior research fellow at Cambridge, as well as a columnist for The Observer. Samira Shackle, who's deputy editor at the New Humanist magazine, and she's recently spent time in Iraq. And journalist and writer James Ball, who counts WikiLeaks, The Guardian and BuzzFeed amongst his past employers. Now, how's that for networking? A warm welcome to you all. Now, John, let's start with you. It's been observed that all new mediums have eventually ended up being captured by commercial interests, whether it's cinema, radio or television. But the internet was meant to be different, right? It's open, it's egalitarian, it's ungoverned and it's inherently bottom up. Is that no longer true? No, that remains true of the technology. But what has happened to it is corporate capture by five very large companies. They are Amazon, Alphabet, which is the owner of Google, Facebook, Microsoft and Apple. There's been moments recently where they're literally the biggest five companies in the world and yet we're living our lives online, they're serving us uh, what we want online seemingly because we all keep using them. Isn't it a bit conspiracy minded to call this capture? Isn't it just that we like what they offer and we keep going back to them? That's a good definition of capture. I mean, for example, Google and Facebook between them account now for probably 70% of the data traffic on the, the internet. Um, sometimes in the evening in the United States, over half the internet traffic is accounted for, not by any of these, but by Netflix. Now, if that isn't corporate capture, I don't know what is. But capture makes it sound like there's things that we would like to be able to do, maybe that we're not able to do, or we're being ripped off in some way. Are, are, are any of those things that you see signs of? Well, I, th- I think these companies have real power. The problem is that the kinds of power they have are different from, in some respects, from corporate power of the old style. 
as it, this is corporate power 2.0, I think. But when you, when you look at it, what we have are five companies which are, first of all, engines of inequality. Secondly, they're anti-competitive monopolies, which have, have switched from being market participants to being market makers and now m- market regulators. So they're kind of writing their own rules. They are writing their own rules. Thirdly, they are creators, at, at least in relation to, for example, the two pure digital ones, i.e. Google and Facebook. They are essentially creators of addictive products. In that sense, they belong, to my mind, in the same category as casino operators and the drinks industry, uh, the tobacco industry, and if only they paid more tax, the, the illegal drugs industry. And finally, they have created platforms which are capable of being weaponized. We'll come on to the politics in a moment, but let's just, Samira, talk about this point of addiction. I think it's maybe something that all of us in the kind of media industry need to face up to. When you're using Facebook, does it feel like you're always just choosing to do it or do you feel it's ever a compulsive thing or not just Facebook, Google or Twitter or any of these things? Oh, definitely completely compulsive. I recently decided to um, try and use my smartphone less and found those sort of, you kind of reach out for it without even really being aware of doing it. The reason I was trying to reduce it was because my phone had actually been broken and I found I kept reaching out for a phone that wasn't even there because it was being fixed. It's quite alarming kind of <laughs> behaviour. So, yeah, it's definitely not entirely within my control. And so when you add in that this isn't just that you've fallen into a habit in the way that people do with, say, smoking, but that there's people there manipulating their software to make sure that you're habituated does that make you feel quite scared quite manipulated yeah it's quite hard it's hard to think about how you can um how to kind of get a handle on that because it's it's partly as you say the way it's designed to be addictive and there's also uh, the fact that these tools are also very useful as it's not just about the kind of um it's not it's not just about the kind of rewards and and so on and and the ways they hook you in it's also the fact that they, they kind of get really woven in especially as you said if you're a journalist you can convince yourself you're doing something very productive by being kind of plugged in all the time it's like well I've absolutely got to keep up with every minute development in in news and therefore watch twitter all day i mean i i must say on holiday last year i every day left my phone on the top of the um chest of drawers went out for the day came back and there was normally a whole load of things that would have seemed urgent if I'd had my phone there and had resolved themselves I mean James you're a journalist who's grown up on the internet you've worked with um, WikiLeaks covered the birth of Bitcoin and done all kinds of things in terms of data analytics and document dumps that wouldn't have been pop- possible in the in the pre-digital age but do you nonetheless share John's sense that we've kind of lost the internet lost that sense of possibility I mean, I I almost um, I think I think John's essay and thesis is fantastic, but I think it's almost too optimistic. <laughs> God, um, I think you know John talks about a sort of internet that was this democratizing good tool that's been captured. I think it's a tool built by idealists that actually inevitably was going to reinforce power. I think that was never the intention. No one was sitting behind it, but there's things like network effects you know a lot of the what the internet does is join people and if you're something like a listing site there's a reason there's one ebay because if you're trying to get something obscure you know there's not going to be tons of it on a thousand small sites so you will tend naturally to one Mm. big one the same is true of a social network the same is true of 
restaurant delivery. Maybe dating sites if you're looking for that special person. Yeah, and, and they seem to manage to proliferate a bit more because, um, you know, people have quite niche dating interests, thankfully. Although if you look, there's only really one or two companies behind all of those. And so that kind of network effect is incredibly powerful and created by the internet. Um, economies of scale, there's only so big a Walmart store can get. That's not really nearly so true of Amazon. And so you have lots of real world effects that the internet doesn't sort of create it but it's they're even more powerful there and then when you add in that you have governments and you know the cloud isn't in the cloud it's in cables that are owned by people that are traverse countries and so I actually think they built this incredibly good tool for reinforcing real world power um, and it just took real world power a while to care about it. But that, that, that's always been the case, I think, with this. I mean, I'm a recovering utopian, for example, because I, <laughs> I, I, I did really believe, I really did believe that uh, this this technology was the most revolutionary one that humans had ever invented. Many years ago, a very wise and experienced old academic one day said to me, do you really believe that it's as revolutionary as these people think, gesturing to techno, my fellow techno-utopians? And I said... Yes, I think it is. I, I really do think, and I did. And he didn't say anything for a while. And then I said, well, what do you think? And he said, we'll see, dear boy. <laughs> and you know what? He was right. Uh, but, but the thing is that we, we, what, what we really underestimated is what you've pointed out, which is the, the amazing power of network effects with this technology. Because once you get a hold in one of these uh, networked marketplaces, then you get a power law distribution which says that it's basically a winner-take-all uh, setup. And, and in, in search, Google has has won all. In social networking, Facebook has won all. Uh, in online retailing, Amazon has won all. It's not the only retailer in the world. That but so the, and all of that is probably driven mostly by network effects. Uh, and the network effects themselves were fueled by the fact that these folks offered services that were free. And we went for them. So what are we going to do about it, John? I mean, you're, you're fairly gloomy in your essay because of the... Uh, it's a world wide web. It would need worldwide coordination to, 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 to get a grip on it. And if you look at the only country in the position to give a lead, America, where all of these things are at the moment, they're getting rid of net neutrality, which is a, a further invitation for corporate control. Um, so having been a utopian who's become a dystopian, you also someone who's prepared to surrender on the possibility of getting any kind of grip on these buggers. No, I, I, I do think it's possible to do something about them, but it requires global cooperation, or at least it requires some big regulatory agency, and the only other game in town is the European Union, as it happens. Um, but uh, there are things that, that we could do about it if we, uh, if we were really serious. For example, there's no reason at all why um, Facebook should be allowed to have Instagram and WhatsApp. So there's a strong antitrust case. We're just breaking it up. Um, there's no reason at all why um, uh, these big giant companies, the minute they see uh, a potential competitor in a startup, what do they do? They buy it. And if, if, the, buy up, if the startup refuses to be bought, then what they do is what Facebook did with, with Snapchat, which is it, just in, it basically pirates its, its ideas and, and launches a product that's very similar to it. But within its own, its own. Now, these are these are straightforward anti-competitive practices for which we have, as it were, a, a legal toolbox. But we need to have the the political will to use this stuff. And the big difficulty I think we have, at least in liberal democracies, 
is that if we were to interfere with them in some ways, then we would be interfering with things to which billions of our fellow citizens are addicted. And that's not a good line to follow. And the United States found that in the 1920s when it tried to ban alcohol. Isn't it right that within the kind of digital age, we did sometimes get a grip? I remember Microsoft was pushing its browser, wasn't it, like... 15, 20 years ago, you couldn't get Windows without also getting this browser. And there was a regulatory crackdown on that. That's a kind of equivalent thing to Facebook saying Facebook will now incorporate this copy of Snapchat or whatever it is. If, if, there, was political, if there were political will, then it would be perfectly, capable, it would be perfectly possible to, to deal in different ways with these companies, to bring them under some kind of regulatory control. Uh, the question is, where would the political will come from? James, what do you say? I mean, other parts of the world, China throws a lot of resources and controls it, maybe in a way we wouldn't like, but do you think, do you think we might be able to get a grip? It's, I think there's always a risk of backlash as well. These are quite delicate systems now. But the problem is we've let ourselves get here. And, you know, once you start asking Facebook, say, to police content, it has two billion people on there. And some of the proposed fixes start to worry me because... I think there are problems with Facebook and expression already. You know, just ask anyone who's ever tried to publish a breastfeeding picture or they sort of famously um, censored that picture of the child being burned with Agent Orange, you know, a very iconic piece of photojournalism. And so we have to think very carefully about what to do. I think antitrust is a very good mechanism. But to sort of briefly be pro-internet, I think sometimes we have to also think about the positives. And it's easy to say when you see someone immediately flick to their smartphone at the end of a sort of when at any moment of idling, you know, oh dear, but it's that thing before that would have been dead time or they might have picked up a newspaper. And if I'm looking at my phone on an evening, I might just be looking at a newspaper article that I would have read if it was in a print thing in front of me. So not everything is bad. And of course, that's not what John's saying, but... Just because we use things a lot doesn't always mean that's a problem. And so the addiction question, I think, is still quite open. Well, if the digital giants are reducing us to appendages of the machine, the luckless citizens of Mosul have suffered a far worse fate, having been reduced to appendages of the ISIS killing machine. We forget, however, that in order to do its brutal work, ISIS really did run a real Islamic state. Roads, basic schools hospitals, and even, Samira, as you found out, estate agencies. Uh, Yes, so I was speaking to families of people who had kind of low-level ISIS affiliation. Uh, So these were not the fighters and the militants and people who are directly engaged with active warfare. These are the kinds of people who had low-level roles, things like street sweeping, um, being a chef, that that kind of thing. It becomes, in a kind of post-occupation context very very complicated to work out what to do with those people and now even uh, if some of the the kind of man of the family the one who might have had this role of fled the families are still facing very very uncertain futures and in some cases you know if they're women they were famously this guy just yeah listeners he was sort of described as an estate agent and yes, there's some contra- yes. but there's so, a controversy about what everything means now isn't there exactly so that this guy specifically uh according he was married to to two women which is not not an uncommon practice uh i met his two widows uh this guy's now presumed dead uh and he they don't dispute that he was working with isis in mosul but they say uh, that his role was basically buying and selling properties so kind of managing sales of properties and ensuring that 
the ISIS authorities got a commission from it. So according to his wives, that was a completely non-violent uh, kind of administrative position. Uh, now, according to the officials at the refugee camp where I met them, sort of security guards who manage it, actually that was a much more violent job that involved violently moving people out of their houses, seizing properties and essentially kind of false imprisonment and murder at some times. So there's a real difficulty of establishing truth. There's a limit of um, severe limitation in things like documents or definitive proof, and it often comes down to one person's word against another. And you'd spent time in the camps that were run by Kurdish forces. There's another set of authorities which are kind of coming out of Baghdad Mm. who were even more given to treat all of these people yes. in a kind of collective punishment type exactly. way. Exactly, yeah. So I was in refugee camps near to Mosul in the sort of north of Iraq and I was in the Kurdish-administered region. Uh, now, the federal Iraq are much, much harsher on the families of ISIS officials or ISIS anyone with any kind of ISIS affiliation. So uh, in the Kurdish context, they're kind of keeping a very close eye. They're monitoring them. If they can get uh, eyewitness accounts, sometimes quite shoddy evidence, they're arresting them, but it's not a kind of blanket victimization. Whereas in federal Iraq, in Anbar province, that where which was sort of cleared of ISIS earlier, mm. In the refugee camps there, uh, when it when it was judged that it was safe for people to return home to their their homes in the city, uh, each individual was given security clearance, and the wives and children of anyone with an ISIS affiliation was just never given security clearance. Uh, and so this amounts basically to indefinite detention and imprisonment. It's a very obvious human rights abuse. These people aren't accused of committing any crime. In a very kind of Orwellian twist, they've been told that their security clearance is subject to completing a rehabilitation program, but these rehabilitation or de-radicalization programs actually don't exist in Iraq. Uh, There's no plans to set them up. Uh, There's no sort of sense of where the funding would come from. And so they're being told that they can go home once they've completed a course that doesn't exist. I mean, it's a arresting sort of tale of like you know how we in the west will kind of charge into a situation think we're getting rid of some bad guys and give very little thought to what happens next which has happened in many parts of the world john um with with pretty dire consequences but is it naive to imagine in the circumstances all these people who've lived through the sort of things they have lived through in Mosul that they're going to be able to calmly organize a person by person trial is it asking too much of um local people the local culture that 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 they could respect individual human rights after what's happened to them i think it is but the other but this what struck me about it is that in a sense things repeat themselves because many of the difficulties that we've just um, heard about um were faced after the second world war in dealing with not just the the main war criminals, so to speak, the leaders of the Nazi regime who were tried at Nuremberg and the rest of it, but what to do with the thousands and thousands and thousands of Germans who, in one, who in one way or another were caught in the machine. I mean, Eichmann was was a, 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 a very spectacular case because he really was in charge of the extermination program. But there were thousands of others, mayors, mayors of towns, petty officials of various kinds, people who ran the railways, all of whom were in some way complicit in um, genocide, but the Allies at the end of the war were overwhelmed by the task of trying to, as it were, denazify the defeated Germany. And in the end, they more or less gave up um, because they couldn't run. They couldn't run the country without these people. So well-resourced Allies at the end of a, a, a war were not able to deal with that problem. It's unreasonable to expect 
um, people in shattered states of various kinds in the Middle East to be able to deal with it either. Mm. And do you, do you feel that, Samir, or do you think actually we could hold, hold people to higher standards? It's a very difficult uh, difficult question because the kinds of trials that are happening, and they're, they're attempting to, to hold trials, but it's mass trials, uh, it's 90%, it's estimated, depend on confessions which are extracted through torture, so they're not particularly reliable confessions. There was a case uh, which I've, I've mentioned in the piece where um, a district judge had said that uh, an ISIS fighter wouldn't have been able to go out and commit killings had he not uh, had he not had a good meal cooked for him. Therefore, the chef also deserves the death sentence. And so that's the kind of attitude. And the two sentences available are life imprisonment or death in federal Iraq. There's sometimes slightly le- more lenient sentences in in the Kurdish region. So it's not a it's not a particularly kind of reasonable or fair justice process that is happening uh, and i think there are examples uh, of this being done in a different way so th- i in South Africa, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which provided a kind of public forum uh, for people to get lots of people at these lower levels, uh, mm. like we've had in Nazi Germany, like we have now post-ISIS, who um, might not have been directly implicated in loss of life, etc., would have amnesty from prosecution, they'd, but they'd sort of have a public appearance where victims could put questions to them, and it really kind of helps to give some sense of public redress without victor's justice being imposed. James, do you read this and think, there's something else we could do? I think it sort of shows it's a problem of a cycle of violence and no one thinks of it in these terms. I think we have a really terrible habit in the, in the West and in the UK of thinking of ISIS as this phenomenon that appeared in sort of about 2011. And ISI, as it was then, kind of grew up as part of the Iraqi civil war in the wake of the invasion. And so, you know, ISI and then ISIS was a backlash to that intervention and of course they come in destroy the apparatus of the state that was inflicted on them you've now got sort of the reversals and it's this thing of we are now a, a reprise for a reprise for a reprise for a reprise if you include Saddam in the first place and so everyone's lost relatives everyone has grudges you know every side has someone dead and we're just going to breed the next generation of it in five to ten years time unless someone steps in but the sort of narrative that we have of ISIS as pure evil and anyone fighting them therefore being the good guys is just going to make this keep repeating and I don't think anyone is ready to try and sell to western governments we have to try and make Iraq and the Kurds be more lenient on ISIS. Back to the relative safety of the internet and how it's impacted on yet another network the political system. James um, you've written for us about the disruptive nature of bots and what they're up to in elections they were there they were real and they were orchestrated you suggest um by russian accounts and at the least they did have some success particularly in the u.s in getting their message across yes i think there's sort of a danger when we talk about it and everything's so polarized in politics at the moment trump and brexit especially and so I think the way people talk about bots, they either say, didn't happen, the vote's real, you know, you lost, get over it. Or, yes, there was this huge network of bots and it influenced our entire democracy and everything's ruined. And bots, we should just explain, fake social media accounts putting out messages. Yeah, essentially. I mean, we call them bots as if they're automated and it's basically just semi-automated things of accounts that retweet each other and push out their messages, sort of stealing the photos of sort of innocent internet users. And... 
none of it's sort of helped by the fact that the social networks are so determined to play down the problem, they've played it down to the point of ridiculousness. And so, you know, there is evidence of pro-Trump bots. There's quite considerable evidence, and it ties to Russia. There's also pretty good evidence they weren't massively effective. Mm. They got some messages into the mainstream media. They got some messages around the place. Now, you have Facebook and Twitter who have given evidence to the Commons saying, oh, there was none of this for Brexit. And, I mean, I did quite a simple bit of analysis and found quite a lot of bots on Twitter that were pushing pro-Trump and pro-Brexit messages that were tied into a Russian network Twitter identified itself. And so their evidence to the Commons was clearly inadequate. And do you think Um, they were fibbing or do you think they just weren't really interested so they didn't do the digging that you did they decided to take the narrowest possible definition of the commons question and answer it i think it was incredibly stupid pr because if you're going to try and do nothing to see here you need to make sure no one else is going to be able to show you up as a liar i think the social networks have been really stupid in their response to this if they'd have looked to be taking it more seriously and earnestly it would have ended up a much smaller story But the key thing is, yes, there were bot networks, but they're pretty rubbish, you know. They're often retweeting themselves. They get fewer retweets than regular users. It's fairly crude propaganda. And so what I see it as is a good warning shot. It's a sign that people are ready to mess with us and play with us. Mm -hmm. But if you look at Russia's information strategy, um, there's a really good publicly available NATO document on how Russia runs misinformation. The people who are doing Russia's work for them best are the ones who are shouting, our democracy's ruined, everything's terrible, you can't trust everything, and who are shouting at anyone they disagree with that they're a bot. That destroys the online climate of trust. It destroys faith in our democracy. It's giving Russia far too much credit for their operations. (laughs) And it creates the exact atmosphere of doubt that they want. So I think we should take some serious steps in law, in how we handle social networks, in all sorts of things as I hope I try and discuss in the piece, there are easy things we can do. But one of the easiest is we should calm down a bit. (laughs) Um, Yes, there's bots. Yes, we need to take action. But no, they haven't subverted the entire democracy of the US or the UK. They're trying to mess with us. They're still not that good at it. We can get ahead of this. So, John, there's there's a few things to disentangle here, aren't there? Because there's are these, you know, Russian fake accounts changing the minds of, of the whole nation? But even if they're not on, on the available evidence, as, as James sees it, then they're still playing with the same techniques that, you know, British domestic political forces or American domestic political forces can use in quite a manipulative way. It's the same armoury that's there for people who aren't Russian to exploit and maybe more effectively... Yeah, and it's a bit it's a bit rich to hear the Americans, um, for example, at the moment complaining about the Russians, a bit like like Victorian spinsters lifting their skirts in horror. Um, when the Americans have been for many, many, many years in the post-war period, anyway, have certainly been energetically interfering in all kinds of elections all over the world, including Italy, including Greece, um, and so on. And 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 suddenly there was a, so there's an element of of it's kind of it's it's, it's Russian scare two point zero about some of this hysteria. There's a sort of moral panic about about bots and the rest of it. Um, what, the thing that I found interesting about it was that um, I, I think the Russian approach to this 
uh, in term, in, in, as a strategy is actually very astute because they have realized that the old model of propaganda where you just blast your message in a uniform way through Radio Moscow and other organs mm-hmm. and the rest of it uh, is no longer appropriate in an in internet age. And what, what you need to do, and which is what they're doing, is you need to, as it were, carpet bomb a, ta- a, a target population with all kinds of information, some of it real, most of it fake, because you want to induce in them, in the end, a feeling of hopelessness, in the sense they're deluged with stuff, and they throw up their hands in horror and say, I don't know what to believe anymore. And that's, that's actually quite a, good, um, that's quite a good strategy for somewhere like the Russian state, which lacks... Uh, enough of the firepower and uh, sheer military power and the rest of it to, to make a real difference. But but they can undermine their adversary in a different way. It's very astute. And, Samira, in that narrow sense, at least, whether or not there's explicit collusion with Donald Trump, the big argument in America, with Russia, there's certainly a kind of coming together of tactics, which is to say all news is fake, you don't know what you can believe, so you may as well believe me. That's what Trump says all the time, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely, and I think that's incredibly incredibly worrying trend uh, this kind of casting into doubt the very nature of 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 truth and you see it actually in all sorts of places in in russia this is quite well established kind of within russia internally of sort of um the end result of of the confusion coming out of the kremlin and the the doubt on all sorts of opposition figures and and various different issues. The end result is a kind of apathy. It's not really kind of uh, wanting to resist dictatorship or authoritarianism. It's a kind of apathy, like well, you know, nothing's going to change, and you can't really don't really know who to believe. So we might as well just just ignore it and disengage. And I think that's profoundly profoundly worrying. Mm. And um, let's just drill for a minute, James, into the difference between the Brexit case and the Trump case because. There are people, think of the Labour MP, Ben Bradshaw, kind of saying, oh, look, the Russians fixed Trump. And when we dig into it, it will turn out they fixed Brexit too. You've dug into it and you think there's a difference between the two cases. Yeah, I think firstly, there looks to be the evidence that we look at shows a lot more. um, We found a lot more evidence of messing around with the Trump election. There were more accounts. It was a more sustained effort. There was a lot more going on. And of course... There was the issue of hacking the emails, which then had massive levels of coverage, um, the Clinton emails. Mm. There's no equivalent of that for Brexit. And Trump won really narrowly. If about 50,000 people in three states had voted Mm. differently, Clinton would be president now. And that means the carpet bombing of social media, that huge political and media impact of the, the hacked emails, you know, it's possible that enough votes moved. Um, it's also possible they didn't, but it's conceivable. Brexit was won by older voters who use social media less, sort of often quite working class, again, use social media less, turning out who don't usually, and it was won by a margin of 1.3 million. And a smaller and so, electorate. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. And so it was, for all that 52, 48 is a close outcome, it's not knife edge. And given the much, much smaller and sporadic evidence that we have of interference so far... I don't think there's a very compelling case at all to say that Russia could have swung it. You could argue, you know, the bus might have or dishonest um, campaigning or something, but that isn't really a compelling argument for Russia. It wasn't that close a vote. 
But before we calm our listeners down too much, let's just have a final word on the people who move in the dark um, and bring things back to Facebook, because you were able to analyse much more freely what was going on on Twitter, which we know far fewer people see probably than Facebook. And Facebook, you're a bit clueless still, aren't you, as to how much meddling there was? Yes, and I mean, I'm quite happy to gun for Twitter, who I think have had a wholly inadequate response to a lot of things, but... They have been quite good for creating a rod for their own back in terms of keeping their platform open and letting us analyse it. I have managed to do some analysis of Facebook, but it's incredibly difficult to do. I I looked at far-right movements in it, and to be fair, they look largely promoted by real people. Grandparents posing with their lovely grandkids and then posting horrible racist messages. (laughs) Um, But Facebook is such a closed platform that you can't see what's going on, and that's a huge problem because Facebook is sort of six seven times the size of twitter and so its influence is much bigger and it is much less known a last word for you john well i think i think the thing about facebook is that at least in the trump campaign it worked exactly as advertised as say facebook is a machine for enabling people for small amounts of money to direct targeted messages very precisely targeted messages at, at users based on their user profiles um, that was designed for commercial purposes, um, but it works just as well for <laughs> ideological and political messages. And, and at least we do know that for sure, that that was the way it was used. Uh, whether or not it had any kind of effect, I agree with James, it's not at all clear that it had any kind of critical effect. And most of the academic research suggests that it wasn't critical. But it probably will change the political culture to the extent that Different ears can now be given different messages to the extent that they're receptive to Yes, that, that's, that's one of the things that's, that has alarmed the, the regulatory establishment, at least in an electoral sense. Um, that's, that's new. It's different from television. That's it for Headspace this month. So big thanks to John, to James and to Samira. The February edition of Prospect magazine, which is in the shops from Thursday, features these fine writers and more, including campaigner Brendan Cox on what cosmopolitans like him get wrong and Shahida Bari on whether post-Weinstein we can still enjoy the art of terrible men. Now you can pick it up in the shops But even better, if you've enjoyed the discussion, visit prospectmagazine.co.uk and hit subscribe. You know you want to. And here's some great news. Subscribers to this podcast will soon have four times the programmes. That's right, we'll be going weekly soon. Find out what the Prospect Office makes of the latest news and ideas and we'll still be having these chats when the monthly magazine comes out. I'm Tom Clark. The producer was Matt Hill at Rethink Audio and we'll see you again next time. Goodbye and thanks for listening.